0: All right, can you hear me? All right, good morning. Let's just pray real quick. Lord, we just invite you into this place, God. We, Lord, we invite your word to pierce our hearts, God. We turn all of our attention to you, God. And in this atmosphere of worship and in this atmosphere of hearing your word, Lord, we just allow you to transform us. Let your word sink deep into our spirit, into our heart, Lord. We invite your presence, to have your way in whatever way you want to to handle this today, Lord. I just surrender my voice to you. We surrender our hearts and our ears to you today, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So my message title today is is my lighthouse. And uh before I get into the the to the juicy part of this message. I I just want to lay a little bit of a foundation. I think that this is probably important. Um, One of the great blessings that the Lord has given us is he's given us his word and we get to take everything and test it back to the truth of his word. And um, so there's some just foundational truths that we can all agree on that will help us to build on some other truths that the Lord, I think, wants to show us. So i got three quick foundational truths that I want to give you that we're going to just kind of establish what the Lord is speaking in this time uh, right now um, off of. And the first foundational truth um, that, that is just foundational to, to what we're going to talk about here today is that Jesus is the same yesterday and forever. That's Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus is the same yesterday today, and forever. That means God never changes. And not just that Jesus never changes, but the fullness of God never changes. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus never changes. They never have changed, and they never will change. For them to change would for them to, uh, to uh, for one part of them to be less, or one time for them to be less than they are now, and that's impossible. God has always been great, and he's always been who he is. And we can, we can know that that This idea that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever covers the fullness of God because, and this is foundational truth number two, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's Colossians 1.15. And the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. That's Colossians 1.19. And so here's, here's what we can know. We can know that if we ever have any thoughts about God that contradicts the character of Jesus, then our thoughts about God are dead wrong. They're just very wrong because the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. We can test every thought that we have about God back to the character of Jesus. Does this match up with the character of Jesus? And if it doesn't, then our thoughts about God are wrong and need to be. Um, we need to seek better understanding on that. And the third and the last foundational truth that, that we're going to use to just lay this foundation here is that there is no higher standard that judges God. All fairness and justice are determined only by him. And so we can all say amen to these three things. We agree with these three things, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And there's no higher standard that judges God. All fairness and justice are determined by him. There's been times where I think that humanity has tried to judge God. We've tried to say, God, you can't do that because, and we, quite frankly, do not have the right to say, God, you can't do anything. He can do whatever he wants, and whatever he does is just and fair because his will is the standard for justice and fairness. So with those foundational truths in mind, let's let's just press into some scripture here. I'm going to go in Zechariah chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and this is what the scripture says. I'm going to read 1 through 10. It says, Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So so a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed him in a garment while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua, this is what the Lord of armies says. If you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will also grant you access among these who are standing here, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I'm about to bring my servant, the branch. Notice a stone I have set before Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an encryption on them. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. And on that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the of the Lord of Armies. So I just want to paint a little bit of a picture of what exactly is happening here, so we could see this a little bit from the perspective of Zechariah, who's in the middle of this vision. In the Old Testament time, in the time that Zechariah would have been prophesying this and writing this, uh, would have been during the temple era, and 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 the Lord would have ordered the building of both the temple and then what predated the temple, which was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a traveling tent. Uh, that was that was ordered to be built during the time when the Israelites were traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land. And this place was going to be the place where the glory of the Lord was going to reside. And so once um, once Israel had taken its territory and it had become a viable nation, then the Lord ordered the temple to be built, and the temple was just basically a permanent structure which was going to replace the tabernacle. This permanent structure was going to be the place where the glory of the Lord, where the presence of the Lord was going to dwell. Now, when the, when the instructions were being given by God to build the tabernacle and then the temple— The instructions were very, very, very specific. It wasn't just simply build a tent or build a big building make it look really pretty for me. He gave very specific instructions from the width, the length, the height of every wall to what material is supposed to be used, how much material is supposed to be used, what color the material is supposed to be. And the reason that God was so, so specific in his ordering of the building of the tabernacle and then the, the temple is because... This was supposed to be a replica a model of the throne room of God. So, this is, was supposed to be in the natural what we could see as and perceive as the throne room of God, which was the spiritual place where God resided. So, so, um, What would happen is is the way that the temple and the tabernacle were structured is there was the outer courts. And this is where the people of Israel would bring their sacrifices and do their religious business. And then there was the inner courts. And this is where the Levites and the priests would go and they would handle their business. And then there was the Holy of Holies. And this is where the presence of the Lord resided. It was separated by just a curtain. And it was where the presence of the Lord resided. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices to the Lord for Israel. And before he would ever go into the Holy of Holies, he would have to go through this process of ritualistic cleansing in order to go into that. He would put on new garments, specific garments that looked exactly the way the Lord had ordered them to look. He would um bathe himself and wash himself he would offer sacrifices for himself and his family and the purpose of all of this was that the people of Israel believed that if the high priest or any person were to walk into that presence of God with any defilement inside of them then they would die so so Zechariah is taken in this vision he's this prophet he's taken in this vision and he sees this high priest standing Before the throne of God. Now he's seeing a spiritual angle of something that would have happened in the natural on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would have gone before the presence of the Lord in this model of the throne room that is the Holy of Holies. But there's something kind of unique to this is is that that the high priest would have gone through all of these ritualistic cleansings, and yet when Zachariah sees the high priest Joshua standing before the throne of God, he's in filthy clothes. And, and what Zachariah is seeing in the spiritual is that all of these ritualistic cleansings that, that had gone that had made, us, made the high priest look, physically look clean, did nothing to, to, to remove the iniquity inside of that person. Only Jesus could do that. Only God could do that. But there's 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 something kind of unique as this as this kind of plays out as this, as this uh, uh, prophetic vision kind of plays out as Zachariah sees this, um, God literally orders these these clothes to be these filthy clothes to be removed, and he says, "I'm dressing you in in, in clean garments, in festive garments." And then basically, what he's saying is, he's saying, "I am dr- clothing you in my righteousness. I'm removing your iniquities from you." And, and, and this is what kind of has been challenging me as I read this, is that, is that we see this picture of the mercy of the cross before Jesus had ever died on the cross. And, and, the, ch- and the thing that challenged me about this is I, you start to ask the question, if God can stand there and remove the iniquity of Joshua with his voice, then why did Jesus die on a cross? Because all of us would agree in saying that Jesus died on a cross to forgive us from our sins. But if God spoke the words to Joshua before Jesus had ever gone to the cross, and his iniquity was removed from him by his voice, then why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus die on a cross? Why did that brutal death take place if if God himself could remove that? With His voice, and we can agree that God could remove that with His voice, because if we go back to that foundational truth, number three, there is no higher standard that judges God. He sets the rules. He sets the rules for what's fair and what's just. And if He decided what was fair and what's just is that He could speak the words and iniquity be removed from us, then I trust that there's nothing that could stand in the way of that. But 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 He chose the cross. And I, and I think that this question is maybe the most, one of the most foundational questions for our faith uh, in, in, in us growing in our faith and, and walking on this journey is understanding what was accomplished on the cross, understanding why Jesus went to the cross to die for us. So let's, let's just dig in just a little bit more here. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 3. I'm going to read through verse 14. This is what it says. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure that he proposed in Christ, as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we are predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession of the praise of his glory. Let's just wring out some juice out of of this passage here. There's a there's a lot in here. Let's just start. Let's just look at verse 3 real quick here. It says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. The Passion Translation says that we are wrapped up in Christ. All of the blessings of heaven come from the fact that we are wrapped up with Christ. And and that means that our full inheritance is found in, in Jesus. And my question to you to let settle on your heart is are you satisfied with that? Are you satisfied with that? Do you look to Jesus for your reward or do you look to Jesus as your reward? And if, and if your heart, as you reflect on that, you say, I, I, don't, I, I don't know that I am satisfied with that then I'm here to tell you that you're wrong. And I'm not saying that you're wrong, that you're bad. I'm saying that you haven't received the full revelation of the love of Jesus. Because when you receive the full revelation of the love of Jesus, you will just say, just give me Jesus. You can have the rest of it. Just give me Jesus. Verses four, five, and six, it says, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So what does it mean for us to be predestined for adoption? That there, there are some that would have, would be, believe this to mean that God has pre-selected some of us to receive and accept the love of Jesus and pre-selected others of us to reject it. He's pre-selected some of us for heaven. He's pre-selected some of us for hell. Um, I don't think that is, is, the, is the gospel, honestly. I don't think that's the gospel. And rather, what I, what I believe, and honestly, to, to think this is almost scandalous given the holiness of a perfect God, but what I believe is that before the foundations of the world were laid, before God had ever formed Adam and Eve in his hands, before he had ever breathed life into them, before they had ever ate of the apple, before sin had ever entered the world, God's plan was always the cross. His plan was always the cross. The cross wasn't a response to sin. The cross was always plan A. Plan A was not Adam and Eve living the rest of their life in perfection, and then they screwed that up, so he had to go to plan B. Plan A was the cross. It was the only plan, and God was going to see it through. And here's, here's why. Here's why the cross is so important, because the revelation of what Jesus did on the cross is actually the unveiling of the mystery of God, the will of God. It's this revelation that God can be both perfectly holy and perfectly loving. The cross is the collision of the love of God and the holiness of God. And if we look throughout all of, all of human history, I would even go as far to say this, that Adam and Eve don't know the love of God and the holiness of God like we know the love of God and the holiness of God looking at the cross. Adam and Eve, who dwelt in the garden, walked with God, did, does not know the love of God, did not know the love of God and the holiness of God like we know because we know the cross. Because the cross is this collision of his love. It's this exposure that I can be both perfectly holy and perfectly loving. And if we read through the Old Testament, we see these people that are seeing in part. And what happens is we have these people that, that understand this perfect holiness. And they get this revelation of the perfect holiness of God. But then they struggle with this idea of how God can perfectly love a broken people and still be perfectly holy. Because it doesn't seem like it should work that way. It seemed like a a perfectly holy God wouldn't possibly be be able to dwell with and love perfectly an unholy and rebellious people. And then Jesus comes and hangs on a cross and says, I can be both perfectly holy and perfectly loving. I Think that the cross is the baptism of fire that John the Baptist talks about in Matthew 3.11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I think the baptism of fire that he talks about is the cross having its full effect on us. The full revelation of the love of Jesus and the holiness of Jesus given on the cross having its full effect on our hearts. I think that's the baptism of fire. And I think the cross confronts everything unholy inside of us with a love that draws us towards repentance. I think the cross, Jesus broke down every false idea of who he was. And he crushed the chains of religion so we can be set free. And what does freedom look like for us? It looks like for us being able to see Jesus and God for who he really is. Us being exposed to the truth of who He is. Because on the cross, Jesus said, This is how much my holiness costs, and I'm gonna pay every, I'm gonna pay every cent of it for you. Because I am perfectly loving. Jesus said it's better for me to go away so the Holy Spirit can come. Why, why is that? That's because the Holy Spirit reveals to us the mystery of the cross. He takes God from the outside and he puts God on the inside. He makes the love and the grace and the mercy of God have its full effect on us. Let me try to explain this in a a little bit of an applicable way so that we can see a picture of this. We would all agree that lighthouses are really beautiful. Actually I would bet that probably 75% of us at least have a picture of a lighthouse somewhere in our house or a little model lighthouse. I think every house has a has to have a lighthouse somewhere in it. And the reason is because we know them beautiful even if we don't think about them a whole lot and we don't under really really think enough to perceive why they're beautiful, we know they're beautiful. And we can go and perceive the beauty of a lighthouse on a bright and sunny day with calm waters. We can go and look at it and say, wow, wow, that, that is beautiful. People do that. We go visit lighthouses and take pictures in front of them on bright and sunny days. But the purpose of the lighthouse is to be a guiding post. And not during these bright and sunny days, but during the dark and stormy nights. They exist to guide and to warn sailors. And a person who perceives a lighthouse on a bright and sunny day is going to perceive it differently than a sailor who might be on uncertain waters in a dark, stormy night. They're going to perceive that lighthouse differently, And the reason is because the lighthouse finds its full effect in the darkness. It finds its full effect in the storm. It's allowed, they're allowed to see the lighthouse. The sailor who's on uncertain waters in a dark, stormy night is allowed to see the lighthouse for exactly what it is. Its effect is, 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 is it's having its way in his, in his mind and in his heart. I don't know if you've ever noticed it before, but there's a lot of people that find themselves more devoted to Jesus when, when things in life become uncertain. When we lose our sense of control in life, we tend to cling to Jesus. We find a lot of people that, that they, they come in and, they, and, they're, and they're deadly devoted to Jesus during this time when when things are uncertain. There's a lot of testimonies that begin with tragedy And hardship, and I'm not saying that's wrong. Actually, I'm saying there's meaning behind that. And the meaning behind that is that we can go look at a lighthouse, perceive its beauty on a bright sunny day with calm waters and walk away. But when we're on uncertain waters, when we're in the middle of a dark stormy night, we can barely take our eyes off of it. So if we wonder why would the Lord allow darkness to reside on earth, when Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That means the battle's over. The victory's secured. So why would Jesus not bind Satan and his demons and cast them into hell? If his desire is that none should perish and that all should have eternal life. And if he's going to restore everything to himself. And we ask ourselves, what is he waiting for? Maybe the mercy of God is displayed in the fact that he allows the darkness to reside so that he might be, we might be able to perceive the reality of who he is. Not just a visual of his love, not just an understanding in our head of his love and his mercy and his peace and his grace, but let that sink deep into our hearts. That stuff takes effect on us when it becomes real and relevant to us when we need it. Living in a broken world allows the hope of salvation to have its full effect on us. Facing fear and anxiety allows the peace of God to have its full effect on us. Being born with fleshly desires that oppose the spirit allow the grace and the mercy of God to have its full effect on us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 7. I'm going to read this in the Passion Translation. This is what says, The extraordinary level of the revelations I've received. There's no reason for anyone to exalt me. For this is why a thorn in my flesh was given to me, the adversary's messenger sent to harass me, keeping me from becoming arrogant. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to relieve me of this, but he answered me, my grace is always more than enough for you and my power finds its full expression through your weakness. So I will celebrate my weaknesses for when I am weak, I sense more deeply the mighty power of Christ living in me. So I'm not defeated by my weakness, but delighted. For when I feel weakness and endure mistreatment, when I'm surrounded with troubles on every side and face persecution because of my love for Christ, I am made yet stronger, for my weakness becomes a portal to God's power. I'm going to read this again because this is the this is the word of the Lord. The extraordinary level of revelations I've received is no reason for anyone to exalt me, for this is why a thorn in my flesh was given to me. The adversary's messenger sent to harass me, keeping me from becoming arrogant. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to relieve me of this, but he answered me My grace is always more than enough for you and my power finds its full expression through your weakness. So I will celebrate my weakness, for when I am weak, I sense more deeply the mighty power of Christ living in me. So I'm not defeated by my weakness, but delighted, for when I feel my weakness and endure treatment, when I'm surrounded with troubles on every side and face persecution because of my love for Christ, I am made yet stronger. For my weakness becomes a portal for God's power. One of the reasons the Lord has called us into this prayer and fasting, this time of intense prayer and fasting, is because the Lord wants this scripture to become a reality in our hearts. He wants us to understand that when we feel these fleshly desires consume us, when, when, when everything seems to be pressing against us, that his answer is, my grace is always more than enough for you. And my power finds its full expression through your weakness. I can't tell you how many times I found myself in adverse situations in adverse circumstances where things seem to be pressing against me and I spent all my time staring at the at, at the at the uncertainty of life and worrying and praying that God would deliver me out of this when the Lord just wants me to say have your full effect on me God in the middle of, of uncertainty, in the middle of this, these adverse circumstances, these adverse situations, in the middle of this darkness, Lord, have your full effect on me. When Jesus called Peter out on the water... Jesus took, or Peter took a couple steps out on the water and then he became consumed by the wind and the waves and he started to sink. And here's what the Lord is teaching us in in this account, in this story, is that we will be consumed by whatever our eyes are on. If our eyes are on Jesus, we'll be consumed by Jesus. But if our eyes are on worry, if our eyes are on the wind and the waves of life, the uncertainty of life, we'll be consumed by the wind and the waves and the worry of life will be consumed by whatever our eyes are drawn to. The cross calls us in a different way. It speaks a better word over us. And the grace of Jesus is that he doesn't just teach us about this, he shows us. He came in a manger and he lived in a a broken world with all of the temptations and all all of the oppression of the world on him. And I think that we see this perfect picture of what this looks like when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's literally sweating blood because the, the, of, of, of the things that are against him, the things that he's facing. He knows the death that he's facing on the cross. And he's literally sweating blood and he falls to his knees and he cries out to God, his Father. And he says, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will but your will be done. If you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus himself says, Father, I am more concerned with your will than I am my own safety. I am more concerned with your will than I am my own comfort. I am more concerned with your will than I am my own healing. I am more concerned with your will than I am my own deliverance. Find your full expression inside of me, Lord. Find your full expression inside of me. When Jesus calls us his body, he calls us to be this image of the expression of God. And that means that life isn't always going to be easy for us. That means that there's going to be times where the Lord leads us into into places where where these situations seem to be pressing against us and he's simply going to say, just keep your eyes on me. And we may, like Paul, and listen, the Lord is a deliverer, and and we call to the great deliverer, and we ask the Lord for healing. I'm not suggesting that we don't do that, but I'm suggesting that when the Lord says, not yet, we say, find your full expression in us, Lord. When we've fasted, and we've prayed, and we've cried out to the Lord, and the Lord has said, not yet, then we say, Lord, find your full expression in us. Make your power known in my weakness. Make yourself glorified in my suffering. The truth is is that we can't step into any of this without the revelation of what Jesus did on the cross. We can't step into any of this without the understanding of the love that Jesus portrayed on the cross. We have to understand that Jesus didn't have to, nobody forced Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus chose the cross. Before the foundation of the world, he chose the cross. He chose to say, I'm going to show myself to humanity through this. And we get to use the cross as our lighthouse. As we walk through life, we get to look at the cross and we get to know the truth of who God is. The light of the world is brought to its full expression in our hearts, depravity and desperation. In our own brokenness, God's glory is exposed. I want to just, I, I just want to in, invite us today to allow that revelation of the cross to settle on our hearts. Since Easter, I've, I've been praying that the Holy Spirit would open my eyes deeper to the cross. And I feel like I have... Week after week and day after day, the Lord has shown me more of His love on the cross. And as we go through our whole entire life and never understand the fullness of the love of Jesus on the cross, but He invites us to ask for deeper understanding, He invites us to come in closer. And when we do, we'll find ourselves in these adverse situations where circumstances around us seem uncertain and circumstances around us seem shaky. And yet, our focus will be consumed by the love of Jesus on the cross. He'll be our great lighthouse. If there's one thing that Jesus showed us on the cross, it's that he is worth all of us. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter. I'm closing up here just with Ephesians chapter 3. I just want this to become a prayer over our own hearts and over our own body right now. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. It says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the power of your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width, the height and the depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you, if you haven't received the, that revelation of, of, of the love of Jesus displayed on the cross, I just would invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you, regardless of whether you think, actually you think you, you've received that, I, ask, I, I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you more of his love on the cross. To let that be your guiding post. To let that be the thing that guides your life and that warns you in, in the right directions. Let's pray, Lord. We just love you, God. Lord, we pray that we would be able to comprehend more, more deeply your the the length and the width and the depth of your love, Lord. Lord, Paul says that he chooses to know. Christ and Christ crucified Lord we pray that 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 would be where our eyes are set to just on Christ and Christ crucified You're the living God We're thankful that you meet us in our needs Lord but that you are the fulfillment of everything we need Lord we pray that your peace and your grace and your mercy your love would have its full effect on us and it would find home in our hearts. Lord, make your glory known in our weakness. Make your glory visible in our weakness, in our failures, in our downfalls in our trials and our tribulations, Lord. Make your glory known, Lord. Lord, we cast our crowns before your feet. And we say, use us, Lord. Whatever that looks like, Lord, use us. We just pray that you be glorified in all of us, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.